Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah, release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Well, I think achievement has always been important. That bar is becoming out of reach for many children. Our kids are getting these messages in the environment and sometimes within their homes by their parents that I only matter when I achieve. And that is what's at the root of so much of the suffering that I saw. Hi, my name is Mark Groves, and I'm obsessed with understanding human behavior and why we do what we do. In this podcast, I interview the world's most brilliant minds and hearts, where I get to explore, alongside you, every subject you can imagine relating to our human experience and how we relate. It is my deepest intention that we all learn how to create the life and love that we've always dreamt of. Now, before we get rolling, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. And one ask that I have, and an amazing way that you can help support the podcast is by wherever you listen to it, giving it a five-star review and a written review. With all that said, let's dive in and transform our lives. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Mark Groves podcast. Today, I am joined by Jennifer Wallace. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. As a new father, my son is five months old today. I've been incredibly interested in looking at child development and looking at how culture shapes our children, but, you know, of course, how parents shape our children. And I mean, you couldn't be more of a perfect guest because you wrote a book called Never Enough, When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. I mean, this isn't a new phenomenon, is it? Or is it amplified now? It's amplified. But I want to understand why my children's childhood was so different than my own growing up in the 70s and early 80s. Because I, I like to think I have the same values as my parents, and and yet my kids were so busy all the time. Weekends were spent running here and there, you know, tons of homework. Um, and so I wanted to kind of get to the root of what's changed. So while I think achievement has always been important, our expectations of what kids should be achieving 
is ever growing. That bar is getting higher and it is, you know, becoming out of reach for many children. What did you notice? Like when you first started diving into this, I grew up in the eighties and nineties and yeah, you know, like I definitely knew perfectionists. I've never suffered myself from, uh, that wasn't my survival strategy as a child, but I'm curious, like what did you immediately notice? And I don't have the data that you have of having kids mm -hmm. that are growing up in this in these circumstances. So I spoke with to get to kind of the root of what what all these changes were happening. I spoke with historians and sociologists and economists and the trend that seems to be most resonant with me is that in the 70s when I was growing up, life was generally more affordable. You could housing was so more true. affordable, healthcare was more affordable, higher education was more affordable, food was more affordable. And so parents could generally kind of lean back a little bit and have faith that their children would, you know, maybe miss some turns, maybe have some failures, but could probably replicate their childhoods. You know, historically in the US, every generation seems to be doing at least as well as the last, if not better. But what we are seeing now is the first generation that is not doing as well as their parents. And so parents are absorbing these macroeconomic pressures. You know, we're seeing the crush of the middle class. Globalization has made, you know, things hyper competitive. And today's parents have bet big that if they're going to protect their kids in an unknown future, then they're going to place their bets on getting them into a good four-year college and sort of strap that life vest on them that will carry them through a sea of uncertainty. We don't know what the jobs are going to be in the future. AI is changing employment and the economic divide just seems to be growing. So parents have bet big that the life vest of a college will protect their kids. But unfortunately, the pressures of that life vest are drowning too many of the kids that it's meant to protect. And there's a better way I found in my research. I'm curious, did you find there was like a delineation of a certain moment or like a year where there was this clear space? Some people point to uh, social media and uh, the recession around 2008 as a time when things really started to take off. I think that's probably true. I mean, I would say social media definitely can exacerbate issues around achievement and pressure that kids feel. It's not the root cause, but it is an accelerant and a magnifier. I found that the root cause, what is causing this huge rise in suffering among our youth is an unmet human need to matter, to be valued separate from what we achieve, what we look like, how popular we are, our GPA, that our kids are getting these messages in the environment and sometimes within their homes by their parents that I only matter when or I only matter if. And that is causing so much suffering and a big rise in, in what you mentioned, which is this rise in perfectionism among young people today. Uh, one thing I wanted to touch on that you, you just uh, mentioned about, you know, let's, let's strap the life vest of a college education on this. And you were saying that, hey, even by the time a child today, let's say is eight, gets to college, you know, in 10 years or whatever, and they get out, we, you're right, like the AI, we have no idea what a job market actually looks like. And based on what I'm witnessing, it seems to me that the value of a college education 
although the value in terms of cost is always going up, the value in terms of like now perception, unless it's something specific, like maybe medicine or accounting or whatever, although you could learn accounting without going to college. I'm curious, do, do we see the the value of a college education outside, like the job market, not valuing it as much? I think there is still a high return on investment for a college there education. There is, okay. Makes um, sense. But I do think that that could change tremendously in the future. I mean, I it's a bit beyond the scope of the book, but I certainly yeah. talked with experts who, you know, envision a world where instead of going to college and and you know getting 80,000 plus in debt that students will want to go straight to big companies like Google like a Google right. university where they can learn the skills instead of um you know incurring a huge debt so i again not the sort of focus of the book but i i can see the tide shifting i don't know yet what that will look like um but i do see it shifting so when you look at these kids who desire to want to talk about a, an important developmental experience to matter, right? To be witnessed, to be seen. It, it, when you tie it back to that life is more expensive in general, you know, everything is more expensive. There are more two parent homes working now than ever before. Is that true? Yeah. So how can one matter when a parent isn't even around to witness? Is that sort of the thread that you witnessed? Some researchers have found that in certain communities with parents both working, that there could be a lot of freedom for a child and not as many rules. But um, no, I think a child can matter whether a mother works full-time and a father works full-time. I think it is more the messages that they are hearing in the world around them and at school that certain people matter more. And that certain athletes are valued more if they're on the A-team. And certain people are valued more if they're more popular and have new, more followers. That we've lost this idea in our culture that we are valuable no matter what. And while every parent I met in my research truly loved their kids unconditionally, the kids didn't always feel that. I, I'd love to read you. I, I survey. I did two large surveys for the book. Um, one was uh, with a researcher at Baylor, where I surveyed 500 young adults, 18 to 30, but most of them were 18 to 22 in college. And I asked them if they thought their parents valued and appreciated them more when they were successful in school. Seventy percent of the young adults I interviewed said that they thought their parents valued and appreciated them more if they were successful. 50% said they thought their parents loved them more when they wow. were successful. 25% of them said they felt this way a lot, the highest that the survey counted. So one in four kids that I interviewed thought their parents loved them more when they were successful. So you know whether or not that's true, this is the message that our kids are getting by our hyper-focus on achievement. So let me just back up a little bit. This is not to blame parents. I, you know, I started researching this book in 2019 when the varsity blues scandal hit. Do you remember that? Where parents on the East Coast and the West Coast were sent to jail for bribery, for, oh, for, yeah, for yeah, bribing yeah. college officials to get their kids an acceptance into a, a highly selective school. And the narrative was, oh, these parents just wanted logos. They just wanted a bumper sticker on their car. 
it didn't sit right with me. Most of the parents I knew, I don't know any of the varsity blue scandal parents, but most of the parents I knew in my community and the communities surrounding me were not so fixated on a bumper sticker. They were looking to help set their kids up for this uncertain future that we're talking about. Yeah. But what the kids are hearing in our uh, insistence on their achievement and and scheduling them early and getting them into you know the right preschool to set them up to to learn how to read in kindergarten and all of these sort of achievement it's markers. Crazy. What they are hearing is, "I only matter when, I only matter when I achieve," and that is what's at the root of so much of the suffering that I saw. Yeah. So like, it's not even an explicit, I only love you because you got an A or you can say this word or whatever it is. It's that just the pure action of desiring to get them into these. So it's really more unconscious, this messaging that's sent. Are the parents self-aware of this? So I don't know that they are. I don't know that I was before I was researching this book. I've certainly fallen into the achievement trap myself. Um, But there were four questions that the psychoanalyst Tina Payne Bryson gave me for reflection for parents. So if, if you're wondering what kind of atmosphere are you you know, providing your your elementary through college age students, there are four questions that she suggested that parents ask themselves. The first one is take a look at your child's calendar outside of school. How are they spending their time, right? The second thing she says is take a look at how you spend your money as it relates to your child. How much of it is on, you know, sports training and extracurricular, you know, activities that you're hoping will land on the college resume? The third question she says is, parents, what do you ask your kid about? When they walk in the door after school, are you asking, how'd you do on your Spanish quiz? Or are you asking, you know, what'd you have for lunch? How, how was your day? And then the fourth question that she has parents ask themselves is, what do you argue with your kid about? Mm. When you take a look at those four factors, their calendar, your money, what you ask and what you argue about, that will tell you a lot about what you are signaling to your child that matters most in your house. I thought wow. that was a helpful exercise. That is. And I'm sure for you listening, you know, there's this, oh, she, she, I mean, I don't have a calendar for a five-month-old yet other than sleep, eat, poop, pee on dad sometimes. Uh, I mean, I used to coach soccer and play soccer. And it was interesting to see as soccer wasn't really till the U.S. brought the World Cup and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't really developmentally that uh, uh, it wasn't like hockey in Canada, you know, hockey in Canada, you can get into elite camps and spend zillions of dollars. Now soccer's like that. And it was interesting to see how these parents had them going from like one soccer training to another team, to another spending tons of cash. And, you know, sometimes these kids were just no longer having fun. Yeah. I, I mean, I've definitely seen where a kid wants to stop doing something and the parents like, no, you got to keep and I, I do understand some of that, you know, that they push through maybe that upper limit. But I do wonder, you know, when I have to navigate something like that with our son, that it's like you have this really thorough conversation of really what is the motivation. And I'm, it, did you see this line where, like in your experience, even as a parent, where that was, like where they get to be discerning in themselves and, and maybe where you need to guide them? Yeah, so I definitely struggled with travel soccer in our family. Um, <laughs> so you know, you know the pain. I know the pain. I also interviewed a, a mother in a, in Alaska for the book 
who had written to me and said that her kids didn't know uh, a traditional Thanksgiving family meal because they were always on the road during Thanksgiving. So they had never sat around a table and had a Thanksgiving meal because of travel soccer. So what has helped me in researching this book and what, what helped a lot of the families that I met were getting clear about your values and being explicit about your values. So if you say to your child, you know, for some families, sports are a high value, you know, they value athleticism and they value staying active and they value the teamwork and all of that. So if that's, if that's, if that's your motivator, that's something to talk about. If you're doing it because you're hoping to get your kid in to, you know, a highly ranked school on a sports ride, that's a different motivator. That's less intrinsic and that's more what researchers will call extrinsic motivations. And what I found so fascinating about values is how they impact our mental health and well-being. Mm-hmm. So I interviewed this guy, Tim Kasser, who uh, has studied for the past several decades how values impact us. And what he has found and other researchers around the world have found is that we have about a dozen core values inside all of us, no matter where we live in the world. And depending on our neighborhoods and our families and our schools, certain values are activated more than others. And so in his research, he has found that those external values, you know, joining a team just for the prestige, getting the A's because you want to hit some external marker, those have been found to lead to anxiety, depression, substance abuse disorder, intrinsic motivations, wanting to be, you know, a member of the team for teamwork or being a good member of society or a focus on personal improvement. Those intrinsic values are found to buffer against anxiety, depression, and substance abuse disorder. But the issue is that values operate like a zero-sum game. So the more time you invest in extrinsic values, the less time you have for the more protective intrinsic ones. And so this was a long way of saying we are raising our kids in an achievement culture that very often becomes toxic. And so what he said to me was, my job as a parent is to focus at home on the intrinsic values, on what it is I admire about my child outside of their achievement, outside of these external goals, because they are being messaged everywhere on social media, you know, on their teams, in the classroom, that certain goals matter, that parents need to actively work against that and buffer it. It makes me think of Carol Dweck's work on fixed versus growth mindset, like how we do uh, praise based on performance or praise based on work. And I know Huberman just did a, there's been a viral video that he did summarizing that. As a soccer coach, I learned about Carol Dweck's work. And then I found that I was giving, you know, praise for innate skill set and not process praise, I think, because I forget what the other term is. Mm-hmm. And with my son, I'll, when he's practicing things, which he's doing incessantly now, I'm like, oh, you're working so hard. Look how hard you're, look how hard you're trying standing and look what you're getting. So I'm like really mindful of that. But Gosh, none of this research was available to us, you know, historically. And I remember one shocking thing about her work was that if you do that praise for just the person, like, you're so smart, look at how you did, that they're more likely to lie in order to maintain that sort of status of perception. So when you look at 
your research and all the things you found, what did you see in terms of how this sort of toxic achievement culture, how is it impacting children today? This was an eye-opening study. So in, in 2019, I wrote an article for the Washington Post about how students attending what researchers call high-achieving schools. Those are competitive yeah. public and private schools around the country. Those kids are now officially an at-risk group. What? After kids in poverty, kids with incarcerated parents, recent immigrants, children living in foster care, it's these students. And what I mean by at-risk, they are two to six times more likely to suffer from anxiety depression, and substance abuse disorder than the average American teen. And what this, what's putting Good them Lord. at risk, yes, it's scary, is this excessive, unrelenting pressure to achieve. And what the researchers who study this population have found is that what has happened over the last several decades is we have removed what used to be buffers to pressure, you know, strong relationship with parents, strong relationship with teachers, you know, strong relationships with peers. We have taxed the relationship between child and parent. Teachers are under a tremendous amount of stress, which also gets fed to the child. And um, relationships, peer relationships are now very competitive because these kids are increasingly competing against their peers for the same spots. The population that I looked at in the book and the population that this this research that I'm citing is the top 25% of household incomes. That's roughly 130,000 combined wow. income a year, depending on where you live. That these kids who seem to have all these opportunities are suffering worse than the average American teen. And so I wrote that article and then I reached out to uh, a researcher at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And I wanted to conduct a, a large-scale parenting survey. I wanted to find out what was the pressure that parents were feeling at home. And so, you know, the researcher I was working with said, oh, you know, we need a sample size of a thousand to be able to see patterns. And within a few days, 6,500 parents around the country had filled it out. <laughs> no so, problem. No problem. I want to tell you exactly how I'm feeling. And <laughs> what I guess, what I want parents to know in reading this book is, and teachers, is that this pressure that we're feeling is universal. As you know, I eliminated the use of caffeine and now I've reintroduced it just a little bit in me choosing how it participates in my life, which I like being in control of my relationship with any substance that stimulates me and my mind. And add to that that I really wanted to find something that allowed my brain to perform at its best possible level. I'm in conversations all the time. I'm recording videos. I'm doing podcasts. And so I need to be at the highest performance I can possibly be. So I've been exploring things like nootropics and adaptogens. I absolutely love this company, Cured Nutrition. I love its origin story. It's fully aligned with my values and the integrity to which I want to live by. The product that I love is called Rise, and it's a nootropic that's formulated by their in-house clinical herbalist. And it contains a blend of lion's mane and cordyceps mushrooms, rhodiola, ginseng, and a broad-spectrum CBD. I love this product. It has allowed me to have greater mental clarity and performance. There's no caffeine in it. So in that time of that midday coffee, I don't have to take it. You get no jitters, you get no crash, and you're getting those functional mushrooms, the adaptogens, and the cannabinoids. And it leaves your brain on fire and your to-do list just gets crushed. So this company, 
as I mentioned, I love, and they are extending an exclusive offer to you, my listeners. You can go grab Rise and any of their other products for 20% off. Just go to www.curednutrition.com slash create the love and use the code create the love at checkout. Once again, that's C-U-R-E-D nutrition.com slash create the love and use the code create the love at checkout to save 20%. Remember that product is called Rise and it is incredible. And I'd love to read you, if it's okay, a couple of Please, yeah. things that I thought were eye-opening in the survey that I did. Um, so one of the questions I asked is, on a scale from one to four, how much did parents agree, I feel responsible for my children's achievement and success? 75% of parents wow. said they felt... Now, when I was growing up, and when you were growing up, I don't think my parents were lying awake at night thinking that they had to make me successful. I mean, they bought me running shoes, but they didn't feel like they had to hire a track coach and push me to the head of the pack, right? So they were like, sink or swim. That's it. But then I was thinking, well, why has this gotten? So I do think it's the economy and the stress on parents. And then here's another reason why I think parents are so stressed out. I asked the question, how much do they agree or disagree with this statement? Others think that my children's academic success is a reflection on my parenting. Wow. 83% of parents agreed with that. So whether or not you buy into, you know, this achievement pressure, you certainly feel judged if you are not participating in it. Okay. Well, all of what you've just said has blown my mind. It makes sense to me when I reflect on the previous survey you said about the kids, that then this sort of pressure would be passed down to the child because you said 75% of parents feel. The thing that's interesting, and I wanted to tie this back to, to your thoughts, when you look at someone who's saying, my child's success educationally is reflective of my parenting. And so when I think of that statement, I think that what people think of me matters more than what I think of me. So there's an inherent people-pleasing virtuosity that, and and that's what's really interesting to me because like when I dove a little deeper into the research on virtuosity, because I find it's in some ways um, been weaponized. And what I mean by that, that's a strong word. But what I mean by that is that there's false representation of representing or believing in things because uh, we desire that someone sees that we believe in something so we're perceived as a good person. Yeah, virtue signaling. Right, and social media has really amplified. We could have done that in our neighborhood by putting a stake in our lawn or whatever, but today you can just put it on your bio or do whatever, or post something in your feed. But what I think as a collective behavior, I actually find now that virtue signaling, I somatically, my body responds with a bit of red flag, like, because if it's to be seen as good, that's very different than to desire to intrinsically be good. Mm-hmm. And I think about how these behaviors get passed on through what our children observe in us and the way we talk about like, well, did you see what Cindy thought of us or the post they did on Facebook or whatever it is? Yeah. So I'm curious because if a, if, if a parent is doing that and that's the energetic of how they're influencing their child, and then you have social media and children, which... I look now and I'm like, wow, if, if, if you're in school and you don't agree with everything that's coming down and the pressures, 
you can be canceled by your classmates. You could be socially bullied. You can, there's really not, if you're not capable of sharing a diverse thought, like I interviewed um, Michael Easter, who wrote The Comfort Crisis, and he's a professor at UNLV. And he was talking about like, if he mentions even just the name Trump in a class, like everyone just, like no one wants to even be seen as possibly. And I'm not making this political. I'm just curious. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So when we do that, when we have this, because there's a fear of diverse thought, I can see that directly leading to anxiety and depression because when you are not safe to be yourself and express yourself, where does all the energy go? You know, you're not safe psychologically. And I, I would argue that, there's not a lot of psychological safety. It's especially amplified in the last, you know, five, 10 years, politically, everything. What do you think about all of that? I think what you're talking about is the need to adopt a false self when mm -hmm. you are, you know, I do worry about cancel culture and our youth because what we are signaling to them is that you can't make mistakes. You can't right. fail. You can't, there's no learning here. You are many adults who should know better. Um, and boy, that's a devastating message. I mean, talk about the need to be perfect. Um, that is a, a huge weight for kids to bear. But I did talk about in the book, this idea of the false self versus the authentic self. And the idea that kids adopt this false self as a protective coping strategy when they think they have to please their parent in order to get love. Um, or that they have to please their teachers, or they have to, you know, get this sort of safe feeling in their immediate environment. They will, uh, you know, adopt this false sense of self uh, just to get through. And what happens over time is is that you never develop who you really are. And so, as you know, one really tragic example in the book. I, I mean, most of the book is hopeful, but I did interview one young student who is now in her twenties who talked about um, how the false self made her, you know, think about suicide. And it wasn't that she was going to kill herself. She was killing this fake person that she had created wow. this persona. So for the book, I went in search of the healthy strivers. I wanted to know what they had in common. What did their parents focus on at home? What did their teachers focus on? What was school like? What were their relationships like? And what I found was the common thread among all of the high achievers, happy joyful, healthy strivers that I met was that they felt valued for who they were authentically at their core by their families, by their peers, by their larger communities. And they were depended on to add value back to their families, to their peers, to their communities. So when they felt authentically valued and when they were dependent on to add value to people other than themselves, they had this high level of mattering that acted like a protective shield. It didn't matter, it didn't mean they didn't feel anxious or have failures or setbacks, but if they said something wrong, if they did something wrong, they believed at their core that they were still valuable, that uh -huh. it was not an indictment of their worth. So I think what I not I think what I found in the research and what I found in my own reporting is that the key to helping our kids, the key to minimizing the suffering we are seeing is to instill this deep sense of unwavering mattering, that you are valued, you are important, you are significant no matter what. 
a mattering has been around since the 1980s. It was first conceived by Morris Rosenberg, who brought us self-esteem. And what he found was that kids who enjoyed a healthy level of self-esteem felt like they mattered to their parents. They felt valued for who they were at their core. And what I am seeing among the youth, but also among adults today, is that we question our mattering. We wonder if we're really significant or if we're invisible. And I think, not not to make it political as you were talking about, but I think what Trump saw is a whole group of people who felt like they were invisible, that they didn't matter. I agree. I agree with that. And he said to them, you matter. And, um, you know, after the drive for food and shelter, researchers say it is this instinct to matter that drives all of human behavior for better or for worse. So when we feel like we matter, we show up to the world in positive ways. We want to achieve. We want to add value. We want to contribute. We we want to raise people up. When we feel like we don't matter, we can act out in anger, school shooters among the most tragic examples, or domestic terrorists, or we can fall inward and get depressed and anxious and abuse substances to forget about the fact that we are not valued inherently for who we are. So to me, mattering has been just something that has changed my life and my sort of view of my parenting, my view as an adult, and my role as a human on this earth, which I believe is to unlock that mattering, unlock that value in everyone, because we are living in a world that tells us only certain people matter. Only those in the right side of the economic divide matter. Only the pretty people matter. Only the people with the largest social media followers matter. Only famous people matter. I mean, when you wonder why so many youth say that they want to be famous as their sort of career goal, it's because they want to matter. I remember talking to uh, a young person I'd met. I was hiking and we ran into these young people and they were probably like 18, 19. And... I was like, oh, what do you want to do? And one had just graduated. I'm going to be an influencer. I was like, oh, what is that even? Like, influence what? I think what's fascinating when you look at young people, I think it's like 25% say they want to be an influencer. But you also bring up a really interesting point about, like, if we took the time to be curious about why someone supports someone or is has a political leaning or has a belief or an identity, we would get to the core value that they're seeking to fulfill. And, you know, when you look at even the desire to matter outside of you to have a significant following that people witness is because on some level you didn't experience mattering probably with your core attachments. It makes me sad because I think, you know, we have so many things pulling on us. And whenever I talk about things that are parenting related, I'm sure you've experienced this significantly, is immediately there can be reactivity. Like we're just doing the best way to add more shame or guilt. It's like, well, if your response to hearing this is shame or guilt, that's your response and your responsibility because we're adults, ideally. And this is just about being better informed. When I would talk to my mom about stuff from my childhood, she'd be like, well, I was doing the best I could. I'm like, hey, I get it. I get it. This isn't about that, but it's like, can we learn? Can we can we expand? So, what did you see in terms of the response to all these things you're saying? I got a lot of uh, emails asking for more information. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. But as you were talking, you talking about the uh, need to matter and how that need can go unmet in early childhood. There's a sociologist at Brown named Gregory Elliott who has a phrase that I think is so impactful, which is what gets in early gets in deep. Mm. It doesn't mean that you can't, if you're a parent who you know, maybe was was stressed out and couldn't be your best self to your kids, that repair can happen at any time. Um, but if you're an adult maybe who was raised to, you know, only feel value, you know, contingent on how you looked or the grades you got or how you behaved if you were obedient, it might be something to go in and explore your psychological addicts and find out about those messages that you were given about your value and your worth and what they were tied to so that you don't pass those behaviors and thoughts if you don't want them down to your kids. So what I found in my search that these healthy strivers had parents who did the work. They spent time unpacking the messages they were given seeing, you know, looking at them in the light with a therapist, with a life coach, somebody who could help them and give them perspective. And they were intentional about the messages they wanted to send to their own kids. One mother that I met um, who was very wise said to me that when her kids come home with, you know, getting cut from the team or iced out in the cafeteria or a bad grade, she reaches into her wallet and grabs a bill. $1 bill, $5 bill, whatever she has. And she holds it up to her child and she says, do you want this money? And the child says, yes. And she says, all right, hang on. (laughs) She crumples it up, puts it on the floor, dirties it up, and then very theatrically dunks it in a glass of water. And she holds up this soggy, wrinkled, dirty bill. And she says to her kids, do you still want it? And she says, like your worth, this bill doesn't change whether it's wrinkled, whether it's been knocked down, whether it feels soggy inside. Its value is your value. Wow. It does not change. So she actively buffered against the messages that she felt like her child was getting at school, among their peers, on social media about their value. And she makes it's sort of uh, something that she does with her kids often to remind them, to cancel out some of the noise in their environment. It's a brilliant way to teach them that though, because of it's course they can the see it with money. Visible. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's That's really smart. And I, when you look at the, maybe the resolution of this, like let's say you you met with parents, they, they were achievement motivating. You said you'd experienced it yourself. Mm-hmm. What did you witness in terms of like how you can repair and shift that? And was there a timeline to that? So this was so surprising to me. The number one intervention for any child in distress is to make sure the primary caregiver, most often the mother or the father, to make sure the adults in that child's life are supported, that their mental health is intact, that they're you know, experiencing well-being, because a child's resilience rests fundamentally on their caregiver's resilience. And a caregiver's resilience rests fundamentally on the depth and support of their relationships. So the multi-billion dollar self-care industry likes to tell us just buy this candle, just you know, use this bubble bath, and you'll get the resilience that you want. But that's not how <laughs> resilience works. Resilience uh-huh. rests fundamentally 
on do we have one, two, or three people in our life who love us unconditionally, who validate us, who listen, who make us feel supported and seen, just like we try to do with our own kids. One of the researchers that I interviewed, Sonia Luthar, is she recently passed away, but she was one of the leading researchers in the world on resilience. And she said, parents are first responders to our kids' struggles, and it is a big job. And so what parents need to do is to find people outside of the home, one, two, three people where they can invest an hour a week is, is according to her research, and she's done several studies on this, according to her research, intentional one hour a week with friends, being vulnerable, opening up, feeling that support, lowers cortisol, helps with any of the struggles you are having in your own home. So when I think about like the first thing a parent can do, I would say is to go out and get one or two people in your life that will listen to you. Ask, you know, create these bonds so that you can feel seen and supported. One of her studies talked about, the title was Who Mothers Mommy? And Mm. so think about that. Who in your life, outside of your marriage, because she said, our marriages are overly taxed because we are these one-person villages in our homes. We, you know, find somebody outside of your marriage, find somebody outside of your home for the benefit of the people in it. And when I said to her, we were, I met her in Arizona uh, for tacos and a margarita. And I said, so are you talking about putting on your own oxygen mask? And she said, no. And she like slammed the table very dramatically. (laughs) And she said, I am not asking tired parents to add one more thing to their to-do list. What I'm saying is find people in your life who will see you struggling and grasping for airs and put the oxygen mask on for you without Mm. even asking. That Mm. is a level of relationship that we sometimes feel like we don't have the emotional bandwidth to develop. You know, we are so busy in our work and in our parenting that we don't make time for friendship. And what the research points out is that if you really want to show up for your child in the way you want to show up for them, you need people out of your home taking care of you. One of the other lessons that I I learned, um, you made me think of it when you were talking about um, praise, was that Rick Wiseboard, who is a psychologist and works up at Harvard's Graduate School of Education, he said to me, the self becomes stronger less by being praised than by being known. Mm. And so instead of praising my kids, I now get a PhD in them. I want to know what makes them uniquely tick. And I point it out to them. So one of the things we did, which I found super helpful, because I think as parents, you know, who are children, you know, we we see our kids so close up that it's sometimes hard to have perspective and see what makes them unique and what their natural strengths are. So there's something called the VIA survey, V-I-A survey. It's a free online survey that was developed by Marty Seligman and Christopher Peterson, who were the leaders, you know, the grandfathers of positive psychology. It takes 10 minutes and it will tell you what your five strengths are, and there's a kid version for your children to take. And that to me was so eye-opening. And then to be able to notice that about your kids, oh my gosh, you have such a great sense of humor, or you are so naturally empathic. And to, to find out how to use those strengths to help your kids reach for their goals. 
in in my mind, those were two big changes that I made in my own house. Well, I think what you bring it all back to is, I, I believe it's a statement from, uh, it might be Chris Peterson, but it's that uh, other people matter. You know, that uh, yes, it's him. Yeah, it is him. Yeah, that's right. Matter. You know that it's all about love, like full stop. I remember I have a friend who I met through a men's group who said to me that he learned the research that one of the greatest predictors of mental health in a present moment is the answer to the question, do you have someone to call at 2 a.m.? And a lot of men don't, and I mean, a lot of people don't. And he said when he discovered that, he said, I, I remember having this visceral choice of like, I could either be sad about that and it just further fuel my spiral or he said, or I could do something about it. So I joined a men's group and he's like, mm -hmm. and now I have 40 men I could call at 2 a.m. And he's like, and it was just about me making the effort to be seen. And what he also experienced, exactly what you said, is that finally he was sharing his story. He was being loved unconditionally. He was having people put masks on him. And, uh, you know, that sometimes it takes that vulnerable experience of reaching out to a group, finding something. In reading all of this research and what the gentleman you were talking about was saying, we now have a mantra in our house, which is was given to me by, uh, I read, it was Ned Hallowell, who's a psychiatrist, who says, never worry alone. Mm -hmm. So if there's one thing you can do, if there's one thing to teach your child, it is to never worry alone. When you feel anxious, when you feel down, when you you know, feel battered and bruised like that $20 bill, reach out to somebody and worry with someone else because that will automatically reduce all of the suffering, not all of the suffering, but it will reduce the suffering. Man, and to think of the amount of times I've ruminated by myself, even as an adult, you know, a good reminder of like, just let somebody in, let someone carry it with you. You know, this um, individual sort of focused culture versus moving back to, you know, you said we have these sort of island marriages that they take too much pressure. It's so true. And, you know, now having a five-month-old, I've dove much deeper in the last two or three years of being like, wow, like, it does take a village. Like this is not optional. You know, it was kids were not raised by one mother and one father. They were raised by many mothers and many fathers. And talk about the pressure that takes off a parent, you know, oh. it's like, hold my, when someone says to me, Oh, can I, can I hold him for a bit? I'm like, yeah, you can. I'm going to have two hands. This is amazing. I don't even know what I can create. But it's not just for you. It's also right for the child. Right. So we are not meant to be, like we talked about, these one-person villages. Our children are meant to be seen and known and valued by other adults, by other people in our community. I mean, it's it benefits us as parents because it takes some of the weight off of us, but it also benefits them. They have more people they can turn to, more people that they can see, they can develop that sense of being valued by the community. That's critical for their mental health. So, you know, I think sometimes parents are told or feel guilty. I should be able to do it all. I should be able to be, you know, everything to my child, but that's doesn't serve you as their parent. It leads to burnout and it doesn't serve them. I just wrote an article in the Washington Post, an opinions piece about how, yes, it's important to raise self-reliant, independent kids, but there is a more profound lesson we want to teach our kids if we want them to be healthy. And that is the skills of interdependence. 
how to be relied on and how to rely on others in healthy ways. And I think that is a skill set that has been knocked out of us. It has not been taught. It's the whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I mean, have you you ever tried to do that? It's literally impossible. You cannot pull yourself (laughs) up by your own bootstraps. I mean, I don't know how that became a thing. So it's only in these healthy interdependent relationships that we can feel like we matter. We can't matter alone. I remember hearing Mark Zuckerberg on, I think it was Lex Friedman's podcast say, he's all about human connection. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure you are. The monetization of attention and the exploitation of attention. So these tools, you know, I think as adults, we probably still have a very hard time actually navigating these tools. As a parent, I almost never use my phone around my son and he sometimes sees it to FaceTime his grandparents, but that's literally it. Because what I notice with him, and I noticed this with my nephew too, is just like that screen is so novel and so crazy to his at three month, four month year old brain. I was like, holy shit, this thing is a serious drug. And when I watched that movie, The Social Dilemma, which was really great, the people who used to be executives at Facebook are like, my kids don't have phones. And talking to Lenore Skenazy now talking about like allowing these kids to be trusted. And I mean, I heard a parent the other day bragging that they survey their kid, like where they are. And I'm like, man, that's, it's, I get it. Like I get the arguments to both sides, but we all survived. What did you notice? Because for me, man, and you're a parent uh, and your kids range in age. For me, I honestly, I, I can't see the psychological benefit of these things, I think social media is going to have to shift because there are so many mental health issues that have all been amplified since 2007, since the advent of Facebook. So like, I don't know how we can deny the research and the impact, but I think at the same time as adults, we're like, but I don't want to give up my TikTok or Instagram or whatever it is. What do you think? So I'm of the camp where, you know, I did meet some kids where social media really was a way for them if they felt marginalized in their communities to connect with people like them in other parts of the country. So I think there are some benefits and Mm -hmm. I don't think social media is going away. And I think parents, the reason, the, the advice that I got, which has really stuck with me was parents need to be as fluent and interested in their child's online world as they are in their offline world. So we will ask about what happens in the cafeteria. We will ask about what happened on the playground. We'll talk about parties and we're, but as parents, we need to be just as invested. What are you watching on TikTok? Who's popular now? Like, what do you get from it? Show me how you use it. Just get really interested in their online world because I don't think that we're rolling things back. And so instead of just wringing our hands, let's get in there and let's show our kids how to use it. Let's give them some, you know, digital citizenship and knowledge and show them how social media companies use them. You know, especially teenagers, if you point out how tobacco companies use them and exploit them and manipulate them, and you could show them how they are being manipulated on social media, they're very responsive to that. I don't think it's in parents' best interest to point to social media and say that is ultimately what is causing our youth mental health crisis. I think we will miss the bigger need. And I think it's a distraction from the bigger need, which is our kids need to feel like 
they are worthy no matter what, that their value is constant. You know, social media, like we talked about, will exploit it. If a child has an eating disorder offline and then is, you know, pursuing certain websites online, um, you know, they get into a rabbit hole and it's very destructive. So for me, it is how are my kids using it and how are they in the real world? Because there's a big correlation between struggles in the real world and struggles online. So be as interested in your child's online world as you are in their real life. That makes a lot of sense that if you're right, you know, if they feel like they matter, they're not going to seek to matter digitally. And you can talk about that. Like, how do you feel that your friend has a thousand followers and you have, you know, whatever those conversations are. Talk about the elephant in the room. Talk about, you know, the feelings of envy. Talk about how that's just a natural, I talk about this in the book, that like naming the elephant in the room takes a lot of power away from it. And we can show our kids how to use that envy in a benign way to really motivate them, or we could use it in a malicious way by undercutting somebody or gossiping somebody. So adults can learn how to wield their envy for positive use as opposed to just the negative. But yeah, we need to have these conversations. We need to bring them out into the light. People don't want to talk about their envy because they don't want to admit to the shame that it elicits, that they're not measuring up. I can only imagine like being a teenager growing up in this time. Like it must be wild. Was there anything that was really surprising in your research that we haven't covered? Like something that you're like, oh, wow, this caught me. What made me sad was how hyper competitive they were with each other and that they didn't feel like they could celebrate each other's accomplishments. I'm not saying all kids. The healthy strivers had parents at home who were complimenting their the peers' friends and saying, what a great job they did on the soccer field. Mm. They were not pitting children against each other. So, you know, that so what surprised me was that relationships between peers that should really buffer against the stress were exacerbating it. So I would say to parents wow. again, to unpack that psychological attic and really be a model for kids of vicarious joy, of enjoying your peers accomplishments and, you know, really bolstering our own mental health and emotional skills so that we can teach our kids how to live a healthy life in our achievement culture. Jennifer, this conversation has been incredible. Like I've learned so much. You've put so much intention and passion into researching this and helping us better understand how to you know, still strive for achievement for our children, like not getting that out, but how we do it. And as a new father, I'm, I mean, I can't say thank you enough for just how grateful I am that, that you're imparting this wisdom for me, but also for the people listening. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Uh, for the people listening, where can they find more of you? I'm guessing your book is everywhere, which that's awesome. Anywhere books are sold, or you can go to jenniferbwallace.com or follow me on Instagram uh, at jbraheny wallace or LinkedIn or Twitter or Thread. All the places. All the, <laughs> All places. the places. Do you have anything uh, coming up that you're working on that you want to share? You know, I have 80 talks around this book. It is resonating. So I'm going to be spending a lot of time talking about achievement culture. And I'm thrilled to be, you know, introducing mattering into the world. And I hope people really see how actionable it is and how life-changing it could be to unlock mattering in the people around us. Well, you know, having been someone who studies and shares on adult relationships mainly, 
that is not mattering is at the core of most of our dysfunction. So thank you for uh, sharing that and, and making that the message you're sending, which is really beautiful. Thanks, Mark.